Welcome to Holding Center, a podcast created to help you own and hold center stage, not only on show day, but also in your life. I'm your host, Ashley Markham, owner of Myo Strength, and joined with me is my co-host, Ashley Spoker, owner of B&B Fit. Let's hold center. sufficiently long-winded to get us to that part of the story no i love it and i love that you also talked about key things that some people kind of like ooh scary like estrogen ooh scary gotta smash insulin ooh scary gonna die and it's like no your body fucking makes these hormones for a reason and you have to be smart because you're not smarter than your body but you need to be smart when using these drugs to make sure that we're not suppressing them and kind of with your thyroid example, like that's why if you are running growth hormone, especially in your off season, pushing for mass, you do want to also run alongside insulin to give your pancreas a fucking break because you are pushing calories. You are pushing carbs to a new level. You mm-hmm. want to make sure you're giving yourself the best possible situation mm-hmm. to produce growth. Absolutely. I a hundred percent. And again, it's very, it's interesting because I, I do live a dichotomy. I am the drug guy and I very much have this you know, mantra of, you know, drugs aren't dangerous. We should use drugs. Drugs are the way to get to our outcome. But then on the other side, on my other shoulder, I have this drugs are bad. We should minimize drug use. And so it's a very delicate game because every time you look at that you know equation, you can see a place where like, well, I, I could supplement that. I could augment that. I could. And it's a very deep, easy opportunity to fall into that slippery slope of I'll just start throwing shit in there and it's going to work. So understanding this equation, understanding the steps in the process can start to lead you to sort of rate limiting factors. So a lot of times people will start with steroids and they'll see wild gains like you do. They work and then things will start to slow down. And then it's why now it's, is it because estrogen is too high or too low? And an adjustment might need there. Then you adjust that, you get some more growth. And then you're like, well, now is it my ability to, to consume and process calories? Maybe now it is insulin or mm-hmm. something that me- mechanistically controls appetite. So it's always this, you don't want to just turn everything to 11. You kind of want to turn something to 11, then start bringing the other things up toward 11. And when everything's at 11, you'll kind of look at like a new set of dials. You're like, all right, I'll start turning these new ones up. You know, In my mind, uh, this may be overly childish, may show my in- innate maleness. But in my mind, uh, I had this kind of childlike vision of being in a like a recording studio. And I have all these dials in front of me. And they're in sort of tiers. So in my mind, it's this like this first tier. We get all the first tier equalized. Then we move up to the next tier. Now we have all fresh styles. We start, you know, equalizing them. And then, you know, as you advance up the athletic tier to the, you know, the Olympia stage, there's just these last few dials up the top, and that's all we have to fuck with. That in in my childish mind, that's how it's kind of tiered and organized. Uh, so when I, you know, say to you like, oh, it's calories and insulin, uh, we're we're way down on the bottom tier. You know, and then when we move into the, oh, it's it maybe thyroid and this thing. Now we're in the second tier. And then we get all the way up to the, oh, it's, you know, it, you know, it's prolactin. Like now we're way up at the top and things that most people don't even know they fucking have. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't know. I if will that's say. Quite what you, now, I, I want to, before I stop fucking monologuing, which by the way, I hate, despite the fact I'm good at it. I will add one thing. Um, there is a very growing internet macabre that women are different you hear that a lot women are different yep. that doesn't apply they're women first of all that's absolute total horseshit 
And the little teeny bit of that that's true is actually backward. As a biologist, I started paying attention in, I don't know, fucking sixth grade. If you pay attention in sixth or seventh grade fucking life science, you'll pick up on an interesting fact in that every living mammal on this fucking planet started as a female. If there's any parallel, it's men are like women, not women are like men. Women are the template for life. All embryos are XX and a gene switch comes on to turn on the Y. Men are a consequence of women, not the other fucking way around. So this idea that women are different, that's horseshit. In, in point of fact, they're mostly the same, but the difference is women are right and we're wrong. I, I, I hope that's okay for me to illustrate that, but that's the reality that people don't seem to fucking understand. Nope. Agreed. I love that. I love that speech so much. It, 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 that infuriates me because I thought that was like free and public knowledge. I thought everyone who even dropped out of high school was exposed to that thought, but apparently not. Mm-mm. I can tell you right now, I went to a private Christian school and nope, never learned that ever. Very strange. I don't under, you know, it's a weird thing you say that I have almost, I have zero religion in me. Like to my core, like I just like my ability to remember names, like my ability to even understand religion, gone. Like I don't have it. Whatever version of autism I have, it starts there. Like, you know, seriously. But the interesting thing you mentioned, you went to a Christian school that was never mentioned. I recently presented in Dubai, Mm -hmm. which was a very adventure thing for me to do. I never, ever in my life thought I'd go to the Middle East. I had no idea what to expect. By the way, the people that I think basically all people there, but specifically the people that had me were just fucking lovely, just lovely to a degree. I can't even really explain treated me far better than I have any deserving to be. But that portion of the speech came up and and I had a certain I would say walk on eggs because I'm not that guy. But I, I did. I was aware of the things I was saying. And I wanted to kind of really gauge like what sort of pushback I got. And interestingly, in the Muslim world, in a room where we stopped to turn and pray, I got to the part about all living creatures are female. And everyone in the room was just bobbed their head like, yeah, yeah, we learned that. I was, again, it's probably just my own um, you know, na- naivety. But I was shocked that you know, the Muslim world was more aware of that than the fucking enlightened free land that I come from, that made me mad, quite literally. And also a little bit reassured that maybe the boogeyman isn't quite as scary as people want to believe. But anyway, I I digress. But it's interesting that I got a room full of, you know, literal, you know, Orthodox Muslims that were just like, that was just as normal as normal could be. I just, I found that strange. And and, like I said, refreshing. Refreshing, but then also depressing on the other end when you realize that not everyone gets like a solid education. <laughs> yeah, sad. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, th- yeah. that's roughly the environment. Um, before I monologue further, wh- where would you like me to go and what do we need to cover more? Uh, or, or is that enough for today? I don't want to kill people. No, I want to kill people. Um, let's let's talk about some practical applications, both males and females. So okay. let's take it from like a muscle hypertrophy standpoint. Okay. How many like I use of growth each day for males and females? And then maybe we could tie into a little bit of like insulin as well, because we want to make sure that people don't miss out on that because I'm not mm-hmm. afraid to talk about insulin. I use insulin because I'm not a dumbass. So like, yeah. well, first of all, before we even talk about that, let's talk about something else sort of. And that is this demonization of insulin. 
I first of all, I don't think any drug is dangerous per se, nor do I think any drug is safe per se. There is no such thing as a safe drug. The most commonplace drug in the world can and will kill you if you are sufficiently motivated. More people die from fucking aspirin than you would imagine. It is, there is no such, there are, there is again, an, sort of an internet macabre to preach safe drug use. I call bullshit. There is no such thing. There is definitely dumb shit you can do that's decidedly unsafe. But I view drug use very much like riding a motorcycle. It's very fun. It's very convenient, but it's not safe. The best in the world can still find themselves in real bad problems. Riding a motorcycle is not safe. You're going fast with no shit around you. You are exposed to danger. Now, yes, don't stand on a seat and do fucking jumping jacks and silly little flips. But in general, motorcycles, as a rule, not a safe thing. That's why you wear a helmet. I view drugs the same. There's no safe way to do it, but there's definitely unsafe things to not do. I would put insulin very much in that bag. The next thing I would point out is, and I always recommend people go behind me and verify. Don't just you know, take me as some you know, deistic guru because I am not. I get a lot of shit wrong. I have a lot of preconceptions. I'm a fucking person. However, some things I say can just be fucking Wikipedia. This might be one of them. Take a look at how many people attempt, keyword, attempt suicide with insulin, and how many of them actually succeed. It turns out, if you look at the legitimate, non-biased, non-bodybuilding statistics, you realize it's actually fucking really hard to kill yourself with insulin. Not very hard to be uncomfortable, not enjoy your experience, but very hard to die. I'm not preaching stupidity. I'm just preaching the obvious fact. It's a lot harder to kill yourself with insulin than people will believe. So let's just put that the fuck to bed. Okay. Now, as far as dosage and duration, if you go through that series of events and you think about the, 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 the binding globulin like rain clouds and you need to start getting moisture into those rain clouds, you can come to the very obvious conclusion pretty quickly that there is definitely a time component in this. The longer you wait to look, the more likely those clouds are to be saturated and start raining. So back in the 80s, when growth hormone first hit the market, there was a mythos that the longer you took it, the better it worked. That's that. It is true. Roughly speaking, to really get the full effects of this process, you need to run it some amount of times. I'm not comfortable just blurting out what that is, but I'm going to say in most people most calorie intakes, most, most bell curve kind of thing. It's probably six to eight weeks just to get to that fully saturated rain cloud kind of environment. So you're, you're talking, you know, you know, 60 days minimum to really get fully wound up. So then if you really think that's when you're kind of grooving, your, your duration can be basically as long as you want. So these people that are going into growth hormone use as a four to six week process, probably, I wouldn't say wasting their time, but they're certainly not experiencing the full effects. Sure. So it's really a post eight week adventure. That's the first thing. The next thing, dosage really comes down to two factors, maybe three. The first factor is of course, finance and access. How much of this shit can you actually get? That really factors into this conversation because I could tell you the perfect answer, but if you can't afford it or find it, that answer has zero value to you. 
So at some point, the reality of what can you afford, what can you get, what do you trust, that enters into your equation. From there, I would roughly say, roughly, um, and I don't like this idea of minimum dose. People always ask me that, usually in reference to anabolics. What's the minimum? What's the least amount of anything I could take? Or what amount do I need to take to see it work? And I never understood that remark. That's a goofy one. But the 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 point is, one milligram of drug X, Y, or Z works exactly like one milligram. So this idea of what's the minimum effective dose, the minimum effective dose is one, like one molecule. It'll work one molecule's worth. Now, that may not be enough to do what the fuck you wanted, but it'll do what it does. One does one. A million does a million and so on and fucking so on. You know, if you have bronchitis and you take half the amount of penicillin you're supposed to take, it still works, just not well enough to cure you of the goddamn thing. So you may, at the end of the process, say, well, it didn't work. It didn't work in terms of defeating the, the pathogen. But every milligram of drug you put in your body worked. It's just like saying, you know, one army beat another. It's not because this army didn't work. It's because this army wasn't powerful enough to beat this army. That's what happened. Anyway, again, I'm off the tracks, but that shit bothers me because it's just the dumbest remark. Like, I'm a little famous for this post-it note mindset that I have. I wrote a book. My team wrote a book, post-it note, sports nutrition, post-it note, hypertrophy, where we try to get these ideas distilled to a point where they fit on a post-it note. This is really complicated and hard to do, but I would say in a general sense, a minimum effective dose in terms of you will recognize it working. You won't be sitting around scratching your head, not sure. You will see impact. You will, you know, you start today in a few weeks, you'll see a, a consequence of your actions. I'd say that's something on the order of one IU per 50 kilos. That's the minimum. I You'll notice it working. So, you know, you at 65, 75 kilos, that's one and a half, two IUs. If round up, most people would. You know, you get a farm grade product, maybe it comes in like 1.8 IUs. That'd probably be about where I'd say you will see that working. It, it's sort of the um like my number for sports HRT. It's a number that I'm super confident will work. In terms of you'll you'll recognize the effects, and I'm also super confident it won't blow your head off. Now, with that sort of one IU per fifty kilos as a starting point, does more work better? A fucking course it does. But again, no, no argument. Like we we know this. You know, uh, this amount of heroin makes you a little tipsy. This amount makes you high, and that amount fucking kills you. We know the dosing curve of this shit. It more works better almost universally. So that's about where I would put it, at about one IU per 50 kilos as a sensible, effective starting point, male or female. I mentioned that there's not a lot of difference between men and women. There isn't biologically. There is hormonally in terms of the dominance of estrogen to testosterone. However, most women that are in this conversation are taking steps to really shift their physiology toward the male side whether it be through behavior or behavior plus drug use, you know, and I hear all the time, these women are like, Oh, I'm just, I'm only taking 10 milligrams of Anavar. Fair. That's still you know how much testosterone a 16 year old boy produces 10 milligrams a day. 
Admittedly, Anivar is not testosterone, but admittedly, a 16-year-old boy doesn't have titties and ovaries. So there is a bit of a difference. So my, my point is, I really, really downplay the, the subtle differences between men and women once pharmacology comes into play, because by and large, pharmacology overwhelms those subtle differences. That can be a little bit insulting to people, but I stick by it. I really believe that in the pharmacologically enhanced environment, really, you're just dealing with people, not genders. And the biggest difference between men and women is really just absolute size. Thus far, and I would love to see this change, but thus far, women just don't get quite as muscular as men. Yes, I love muscular women. So the bigger, the better. But anyway, that's, <laughs> I know it's a completely separate conversation, but that's that's my that's my shit. So roughly speaking, one IU per 50 kilos. And now here's the interesting part. You said hypertrophy. I'm actually going to answer that plus. As I illustrated, your body has already called out the the peri the, the peri to sleep environment. So that's probably where I would say you're going to get your best bang per IU of hypertrophy is pre-bed. Roughly speaking, pre-bed, like sit on the edge of your bed, take your shot, put the pin down, put your head on a pillow. That's going to line up your sleep cycle with your somatropic cycle very roughly. Um, in that same conversation, if you go back to that chain of events, growth hormone enters the bloodstream, it talks to satellite cells, it also talks to the pancreas, and the pancreas releases that lipase glucagon, which then go forth and release fat and sugar into the bloodstream. Let's say you were a practitioner of fasted morning cardio because maybe you were getting ready for an event. Now your priority has shifted maybe a little bit away from hypertrophy toward really, really maximizing, utilizing stored energy substrates, aka diminish your big fat ass. You now have a hormonal environment that's helping you do that. This drug you administer is causing a release of fat from your fat ass into your bloodstream. Now, if you were to wake up first thing in the morning, initiate that cycle, maybe make a pot of coffee, maybe sip a bit of coffee, 60 minutes has passed since you've woke up. Now you have this environment where your bloodstream is seething with fat. You now hop on said treadmill burn up that fat. Yes, you interfere with the substrate meant for powering this energetic growth, but now you're just be able to burn it off as heat. So the moral of the story is, if you had a limited amount of drug to spare, biasing pre-bed will absolutely maximize hypertrophy per IU. Biasing first thing in the morning will absolutely maximize fat loss per IU, but will not maximize hypertrophy. So now you have two different windows with two different outcomes. So if you only have the ability to fund one or the other, those are your choices. Then if you have extra funding, you can start to get clever and go, you know, three before bed and two in the morning or vice versa or some shell game to maximize your outcomes based on your inputs. Absolutely. So here's a question for you. So obviously we're okay. talking about, you know, male and female physiology and biology. So when it comes down to what I've been exposed to, I have never heard someone tell a female that she can go over two IUs of growth hormone, that she wouldn't see benefit. Is that true? 
but how what would what would be the mechanism is there some drain hole in your you have like a special fucking nozzle somewhere that it leaks out of that i'm unaware of where where would it go i would love to know too (laughs) well now what i would say is i'll go back to again trying to be consistent to what i said the biggest difference between men and women is absolute mass yes it's reasonable to assume that the best female bodybuilder in the world at 190 pounds can't use the same amount of growth hormone that the best male bodybuilder at 290 pounds. That's a rational statement. But to say that more won't work more, um, that's just foolish. Now, the, the curve may not be the same in terms of the response per IU, the diminishing returns, all that. But the idea that there, there's just like some upper limit that the XX chromosome won't accept more than this amount of growth hormone, that's retarded. And uh, again, I don't like to use these examples because they're they're just not fair. But for instance, Andre the Giant comes to mind in every conversation of growth hormone. He had a pituitary disorder. There was a really interesting quirk in his physiology that allowed him to kind of be receptive to growth hormone his entire life. He kept growing into adulthood. But the thing that people don't realize is that same unfortunate physical um, syndrome does in fact occasionally appear in females and we wind up with women that are seven feet fucking tall and have great big hands and um you know as delicious as that is that that actually happens occasionally mm-hmm. so this idea that women are you know somehow blunted to extra growth hormones retarded it's just not common and getting the conditions just right are uncommon but the idea that it can't happen is retarded it's just it's silly beyond like a, anything i can even really articulate now Again, going back to the base reality, yes, almost always doses are bigger in men than women because almost always men are bigger than women and also dumber and more reckless. That fucking matters too. Um, Then another factor that comes in also is if you go back to that equation concept, women most of the time, if they're committed to remaining women, are not willing to push the androgens above a certain point. So when you think about all those dials, you know, if you have one dial, if all your other dials are willing to go to 11, the the calories, the insulin, the other things, but that androgen dial, you're only willing to turn that to six. You do have a lot, a, a, a rate limiting factor there. So the idea that women might be a bit more constrained is not really because growth hormone won't work. It's because they really shouldn't cross certain Rubicon. Does that make some sense? Yeah, absolutely. So would you okay. most likely, you know, let's say the androgen is the limiting factor. Would you say that there could be t- um, possibly be a bit more benefit to maybe then pushing the envelope and a little bit more growth from maybe going up to three or four IUs? Absolutely. And by the way, I, I don't like to throw anyone under the bus. So I'll try very hard not to do that. But I, I work and have worked historically with some of the top female athletes on the planet. Literally people that have been to the Olympic Games, the Miss Olympia, uh, open bodybuilding, really not. And and I think physique, um, you know, CrossFit Games, like the, the best female athletes on earth. And I, I could tell you half of them have crossed that two IU mark up into the four and even six. Um, not all of them were tickled with their responses, but I can tell you with an absolute straight face, I know fleets of women that have crossed into that territory. Mm-hmm. In the same breath, I can say, the lion's share of them really have no need to. Okay. You know, when I say need to, I mean, progress is still happening. You know, they're still able to march forward at that lower dose. 
Um, I would say in a general sense, the, the kind of superpower that women have that men don't is in general, women are a bit more patient. And that is the secret, I believe, to female success is you're never going to see the 20 pound gain in a course, you know, that, you know, douchebag college kid, college boy is going to see. But I do see women having a bit more chops to grind for those two or three or four years to get those same results. So I really think there's an, an interesting synchronization between the reality of what women need to do and the psychology of how they do it. It, it lines up very, very well. Um, I want to jump. I, I don't know where you want to go with this, nor do I know how long you want to spend with this. I hate to talk you to death, but I do want to come back to you mentioned IGF-1 in the beginning of this conversation as a standalone tool. Yeah, I want to illustrate. I, I mentioned, you know, if you, you kind of poll people that have used IGF-1, some really say it worked amazing and many do not. I think it's that chain of events. And if you look at that chain of events, and you have this environment where somebody's been using growth hormone for a relatively long period of time. They have built up a lot of binding proteins, but because of the relatively modest dose, those rain clouds aren't full. They're active. They're there. They're not full. If you in that environment started interjecting IGF-1, it would work like magic because you're sort of seeding the clouds. Whereas if you took two twins, one went through that environment of creating that metabolism, generating those binding proteins, filling the clouds, or, or at least you know, creating the clouds, and then you had the other twin, male or female, that did not do that. There's no clouds. So they throw IGF-1 in. It just, you know, it's like dumping a bucket of water. It splashes everywhere, and then it just rolls away, and it's gone. So if you didn't get wet right in that dump, you didn't get it. Whereas rainstorm environment every day there's just a soft gentle rain of growth you can see why you would get two wildly different results and it's not because the drug didn't work it's because the environment in which the drug was introduced was not favorable and i really think when you find somebody that gets a great result from a thing it's just because quirk that environment was really appropriate to that behavior yeah that absolutely that makes sense so okay let's actually uh, go down that avenue if you don't mind talking about like let's say you do you know have that beautiful cloud environment where can you know where can the conversation be be directed toward using like igf1 or even secretagogue so that's actually something i am really that that's out of my depth because that's right. just not where i've been educated okay well the first thing i would say about secretagogues is i i really don't favor them for what they're known for. They are notoriously growth hormone secretagogues. It's that growth, that growth word sneaks in there. Everybody sees it as a pathway to free or cheap growth hormone. I don't really buy that for a whole lot of reasons. However, that's not to say I don't often suggest the use of secretagogues. I do. And it's actually because almost universally, they have a very, very positive impact on appetite because the way they work manipulates some key hormones that ultimately wind up manipulating the leptin ghrelin pathway in the stomach, upregulating appetite. <laughs> so some of them don't. Ipamorelin maybe does the least, but if you have like CJCs and uh, th some of those things or MK677, the biggest thing it does is really drive appetite, which especially in a pharmacologically enhanced environment, aka steroids, that oftentimes 
dumbed down appetite, having a drug that maybe will do a little growth hormone something or other, but will wildly support appetite becomes really relevant. So I have in many cases talked about and even supported the use of secretagogues, but it's usually not for growth hormone. Growth hormones in this world is pretty cheap, pretty accessible and super fucking effective. I don't really see why we need to like cheat and get goofy extra little dribbles of growth hormone. Just it doesn't seem sensible. So secretagogues, eh, like I said, mostly for appetite, take the little bit of growth hormone you get. Cool. <laughs> they also, especially MK677, uh, can actually have some pretty positive benefits on sleep. So again, it does have some utilities, but I think growth hormone is pretty low on that on that tier. Um, now, IGF-1, again, the internet's done a really poor job of really making this conversation coherent. First of all, there is probably 10 different varieties, market varieties, commercial varieties of IGF-1. There's IGF-1. There's IGF-1 LR3. There's IGF-1 DES. There's a whole bunch of others. There's pegulated IGF-1s. There's a ton of kinds. So before you even get into the conversation, you really need to start talking about what exactly are you talking about? That matters. For this conversation, I will talk about IGF-1 native and IGF-1 DES. The DES is essentially a, a shortened version. It's when I mentioned the liver can clip up that big molecule into littler ones. That's what's going on there. It's it's IGF one minus a few of the terminus on the on the end. Um, IGF one by itself is a very short lived. That's why the binding protein comes into play so relative. It really has a lifetime, very short, like thirty minutes from leaving the liver to just breaking apart and being useless. Um, those compounds would be used as an, kind of the icing on the cake that is growth hormone use. You would use growth hormone, get that cycle moving, get those binding proteins upregulated, create the clouds, put a little moisture in the clouds, then and only then. So we're talking potentially two to three months post-initiation of growth hormone. We now have an environment that will be receptive to the IGF-1. So now you administer a short-acting IGF-1, a portion of it is caught in those clouds, kind of seeds your clouds to have an even bigger rainstorm later. Cool. IGF-1 DES is a little bit different insofar as um, the, the alteration, the shortening, makes it pH resistant. So when you actually exercise, you are causing a, a cascade of energy release. That energy release leaves waste products Everyone's heard of lactic acid. It's really not into conversation, but for the sake of argument, as the lactic acid goes up, the acid is pH down. So as lactic acid and other metabolites go up, the pH goes down. At a certain point, the pH will get to a degree that starts to distort the actual receptors that acknowledge IGF-1. So regular IGF-1 will come along and the, the receptors kind of twisted and it won't go in. You know, imagine if you had a Lego and you warped one in the sun, it would be very hard to click the other Lego into it because it's distorted. It just so happens that IGF-1 DES is distorted in the same format. So as the pH goes down, DES actually starts to fit better. So IGF-1 DES could be used intra-workout in an environment of high acid. So you do some high rep lactate or uh, metabolite type training drive up a big 
burn, if you will, that's an environment where your regular IGF-1 won't work, but IGF-1 DES might. So let's say, for instance, you had um, a, a weak portion of your quad, like your your you know your outer sweep. There's a nice douchebag bodybuilding term. Your outer sweep is in in inferior. You could do leg extensions until there's a nice burn, a lot of acid, and then directly apply IGF-1 DES to that environment, it'll find a nice happy home, click in, initiate some of the growth pathways that it wouldn't be able to do otherwise. So that's a very niche environment specific. Usually that weak body part sort of targeted therapy kind of approach. Um, interestingly, the one people find the most interesting and exciting and sexy, and honestly, the one that I kind of downplay the, the most, I don't, it's real. It really works. But honestly, I think that just kind of doing the basics usually overwhelms that. But I have met a few people that just nothing in the world made their whatever, you know, their thing, their, their vastest medialis or their whatever. And I have seen that sort of very targeted, very specific approach make some pretty big changes. That's incredible. I didn't know that. Holy shit. I might try that for my fucking glutes, man. That, that sounds baller. <laughs> Yeah, just really one final question. And this is, I think, something that I just kind of want to like lay to bed. But okay. is there such a thing as like um, spot injecting when it comes to hypertrophy? So, for example, like people talk about IM administration of growth versus sub Q and how that interplays with like localized IGF versus like, you know, centralized IGF. Because again, like you've said repeatedly, bloodstream. Is there any validity to having like a localized effect, especially because, you know, obviously if you're injecting into the muscle, you are causing muscle damage, muscle trauma. Yeah. Well, again, here's a, and I don't, I could easily monologue on this for an hour. So I'm going to do my best to be succinct, but this is where I really find the paper waving crowd to be doing a disservice to sports. Not to say I have a disdain for science, not to say I don't value papers and literature and research. I do. But the problem is context. You can find gobs and gobs of research that does, in fact, show there is a local effect. There is. But what they fail to put into context is the magnitude of that effect. So the difference between something being real and something being really relevant fucking light years apart. So yes, if you inject growth hormone locally, you will find some local swelling. You will find some local manufacture of IGF-1 from that growth hormone. But the reality is all of that, yes, it happens, but it happens in such phenomenally small values that it's essentially worthless. <laughs> essentially, not, not zero. So that you know you can wave around a paper saying oh it's been shown that you know local injection if you put growth hormone in your biceps your biceps are more anabolic yeah by 0.11 you know 0.0001 yeah so it's true and it's also not worth the goddamn effort or the risk once again not trying to be dramatic but drugs in general are bad uh, controlled and sort of culturally frowned upon. So the more you're wandering around our streets and byways with fucking drugs, the greater risk you are to yourself and others. So now is it worth that infinite decimal point of extra growth to have to leave the house with drugs? Probably not. 
unless you can do you know whatever you know leg extensions in your living room which maybe many can so fair enough i'll 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 you know dip my tip my hat to that but in general i would say always default to that thumbnail sketch of bloodstream and liver if the bloodstream and the liver aren't involved you're probably not getting much of what you want out of that process i didn't say zero i said much there's a difference awesome no that was a great fucking answer and i really am glad that was kind of put to bed because i i there's been so many arguments and stuff like that and i'm like at the end of the day my i, I try to do what makes sense and for me, like I was always in the in the camp of like having to optimize fucking everything for everything to be mm -hmm. like 0.1% better. But I've come to quickly realize that if, if it takes 5% effort to be 0.1% better, we're going fucking backwards and it's 100%. no longer making sense. I absolutely agree with that. And it's almost become my mantra in my later, you know, half of my career here. Um, I, I, and I think people kind of look at it as a bit like dinosaurish behavior, like, oh, you know, he only focuses on the basics, like he's not up to date. And and like, it's not that I'm not up to date. I'm aware of shit people aren't even up to date on yet, but I've not embraced it because I just don't think it's the pivot. I really don't. I think when I look at when I get people from IFBB pros that literally have placed at the Olympia and they come to me and they're like, well, what do I need to do? And I'm like, fucking everything like this is shit. Like they don't realize they don't have the basics tightened sufficiently to even consider any of these delicate tweaks. Yep. For me, I've stopped using the word basic because especially in culture nowadays, it's like you hear like basic white bitch pumpkin spice latte. For me, I've started to use the word fundamental. It is Absolutely. paramount. It is fundamental that you get, you know, your calories and then your macros and your sleep and your water. Like that's what I fucked up. It's like my tier one, I was mm -hmm. so focused on drugs. Like my first drug cycle was like clenbuterol and Anavar. And it's like, I wasn't training worth a goddamn. I wasn't eating worth a goddamn. I wasn't sleeping worth a goddamn. And yeah, I got some results cause I wasn't doing nothing. But now that I am finally a fucking athlete and not just like, you know, a pinwheel twirler, it's like now I'm getting so much results from such little drug, like yes. such little drug because yes. I have the fucking fundamentals. Absolutely. And the other thing, and it, I don't, I don't want to just get on this little, you know, bandwagon and you know, push it off the stage. But um, I think you, you will, and anyone else who commits to that kind of mindset will find something very, very interesting. And that's in my experience, progress made under the underpinnings, the fundamentals, is considerably more permanent than progress that is built without those fundamentals. It really seems that building that foundation makes the entire building just last longer. Um, I, I know that that's a very easy thing to say being old and looking back. It's a very hard thing to embrace if you're young and excited. But I will say that I sincerely believe that to be true. Absolutely. I mean, I started bodybuilding when I was like bodybuilding when I was like 22, 23. And now that I'm 27, I look back and I was like, you dumb bitch. Like you could have been so much better, but yeah. Hey, live and learn. Right. Yeah. Uh, honestly, you know, I, it's funny. I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to kind of interject a level of humility, humility, but it, in my head, I keep framing it in a way that sounds very arrogant, but I, I, 
I'm this, you know, grand expert and I know all these things and I do all these lectures, but two things I would say is one, just like yourself, I've done more wrong than right. Uh, and then two, I coach myself each and every day to kind of acknowledge and almost be okay with making mistakes. Because I honestly think if you're not making mistakes, you're probably not trying hard enough. You know, it's kind of like that old axiom, you know, if you're not cheating, you're not trying hard enough. Well, I, I also believe if you're not fucking up every other task, you, you're not, you're not being innovative. You're not being clever. You're not, you know, like you have to risk failure to, to even get a success. And I, I really believe that. No, absolutely. I mean, shit, one time I used to be 118 kilos. So like the fact that I'm still here, I'm not even kidding you. I was 260 pounds at 16 years old. Like I was a fat fuck. So like the fact that I'm like here a bodybuilder and I actually look like I have muscle, like that's just, just a fucking miracle in and of itself. Absolutely. It's exciting. It's good for you. And it, you know, it's, it's good. Yes. No, but I thank you so much for coming on today. Like I'm going to actually split this up and do um, part one and part two, because I, I just wanted to keep the conversation going, but just for like the listeners, so that way they can actually like retain the information. We'll have kind of like the whole background setting up of like IGF and growth hormone, and then kind of like a little Q and A at the end. But seriously, thank you so very much for your time. Um, this has been phenomenal and I learned a lot. And honestly, I'm going to fucking say it. I'm going to re-listen to this myself just so I can absorb everything else that you said. Well, thank you. And, uh, I, I appreciate being invited. Um, I'm, I'm, a little weird about what I do and don't accept. And, um, you know, I, it, you, as well, you know, like literally almost the moment you asked me, I agreed. So yeah, it's, I'm, I'm very happy to be here and it's been, been a good time. I was, I was tickled pink. I was like, Eric, he accepted. He's like, who is this? I was like, just, he's really fucking cool. Like he accepted. <laughs> well, thank you so much guys. And thank you so much for listening. Take care. Bye-bye.